We are in um, Genesis, and uh, we've been looking at Noah's Ark and all of that, and so uh, we are in chapter 8 this morning. I'm not going to be reading that text this morning, but you can find it in your Bibles in chapter 8 of Genesis. We've been looking at the, uh, the fact that it took 120 years to build the ark. But the months of waiting for the waters to recede, I want to suggest to you, probably seemed longer than the 120 years that it took to build the ark. Because during those 120 years, you know, Noah had a plan, and he, he was working, and he had something he was driving to get done. But during those months of waiting for the waters to recede, five months, nothing to do except for to wait, and to feed all the animals and all of that after being cooped up, I have a sense that that seemed really, really long for Noah. So I want to say that, and then I want to jump in and just draw your attention to some things that you might have missed in this, in this story. There is an incredible amount of detail in, in chapters 6 through 8 that would not need to be there. I mean, you could tell this story without almost any of the detail. But God puts it in there, and it is one of the reasons why you and I can know and have an assurance that God's word is so solid, because he puts those details in that you and I can go and check. <laughs> if God was just creating a fairy tale for us to follow, he wouldn't put all those details in. And all those things that you and I can go and check out and, and study and observe. And sometimes there's a lot of things for centuries we haven't known. And then all of a sudden, in the last hundred years, there's been a lot of the Bible that's been proven true because of the detail that is there. Listen to just the detail that we find in these three chapters. Noah entered the ark when he was 600 years, two months, and ten days old. When you're 600 years old, how much difference does 10 days make? Seven days later, it began to rain. The rain fell 40 days and 40 nights. The floodwaters spread across the entire earth, not just a part of it, covering the mountaintops to a depth of 20 feet. All creatures, creatures on dry land were wiped out. The flood covered the earth for 150 days. Not 149, not 160, 150. As the flood waters receded, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Evidently in the Eastern, uh, the region of far eastern Turkey on the border with Russia. Seventy-four days later, the tops of the mountains became visible. Forty days later, Noah sent out a raven. Then Noah sent out a dove on three different occasions, and the third time the dove did not return. 
Two weeks later, he saw dry ground. Noah stayed in the ark for another 57 days until the Lord said he could leave the ark. Noah was 601 years, 2 months, and 27 days old when he left the ark. If you add all that up, Noah was on the ark for one year and 17 days. Isn't that amazing, the amount of detail that Moses gives us about this flood and about Noah and all of that? Let's pray. Father, we just uh, come before you and we come before your, your inspired word of God. There is no other book like it on the face of the earth. There is no other book that is the breath and the life and the wisdom of God written for us. Speak. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I am reminded this morning that Merton, my friend Merton Anderson has told me many times the story of the rancher that went out and when he was down on cows, he went ahead and fed them everything he had that when he, you know, as much as he would when everyone was there and he said, you know, you don't really need to do that, uh, but you're going to get the full load today anyway, um, <laughs> whether there's people missing or not. So um, we are told that God remembered Noah. That does not mean that God had forgotten about Noah and the ark. Um, and yet, there are times in your life and times in my life when we know up here God has not forgotten us. And yet, we still feel forgotten. We still feel forsaken by God. And we are not alone in that. We are not even alone in the scriptures in that. When you think of the Psalms and you read through the Psalms of that magnificent King David, and he writes some of the most wonderful Psalms, and he writes some of the most depressing Psalms, where he pours out his heart and he says, my God, where are you? <laughs> and then he will encourage himself towards the end of the psalm and say, look up, my soul, look up. Put your hope in God. <laughs> and there been, there's been times in your life and there have been times in my life where we might feel forsaken and forgotten by God. And I kind of suspect that Noah, after being on that ark for a year, was starting to feel forsaken, forgotten. And it says that God remembered Noah. Think of Jesus on the cross, and he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his 
true for Jesus. There are times in your life, in my life, that God has not forsaken us, but we feel that way. Noah, too, I think, cramped up with all the animals being tossed back and forth on the water and all of that. And there's no mention in all of this story that once he entered the ark that Noah heard from God a direct word. He might have really, literally felt very forsaken and forgotten until God told him to lead the animals out. That's the next time we hear that God speaks directly to Noah. And you and I can have our own ideas about the ark, but it was no luxury cruise ship. Did not have movies or entertainers or a swimming pool or fancy buffets. As one big smelly boat. <laughs> but whenever God uses this phrase, God remembered. It does not speak so much of God intellectually remembering you. It speaks of God exercising activity on your behalf in a new and a fresh way. God remembered Abraham, and therefore he rescued Lot. The Lord remembered Rachel and Hannah, and therefore enabled them to conceive and bear children. The Lord remembered his covenant with Israel and with Abraham and therefore delivered the Jews from Egyptian slavery. And here God remembers Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that, the cattle that were with him in the ark and therefore he stopped the rain. The next thing that we see in this text is that God initiates the drying up of the earth. He sends the rain. He closes the springs from underground that keep flowing, flooding the earth. He shuts off the floodgates of heaven that keeps the rain coming down. Noah does nothing. He doesn't contribute to any of that. There's nothing Noah can do to stop all of that. God does it all. God initiates it all. All Noah does is wait for 150 days for the waters to recede. And then we are told that the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. Now there's something that we don't catch in our English Bibles there, but there is a wordplay going on there. For it says the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. What you and I don't see in our English Bibles is that Noah's name means rest. His name meant rest. When Lamech, his father, named him, he was hoping that Noah would bring rest to a very weary world. Already, Lamech looked around the world and he just saw all the wickedness and evil and he was concerned about the world. And when he, gave, when he, when he, when he saw his son, Noah, he named him Noah and named him rest and prayed that somehow rest, would, rest and peace would enter into the world through this man, Noah. So the ark comes to rest on Ararat, and there was no more tossing of the ark on the waters. It came to rest. And the world would all of a sudden, in this man Noah, because of what Noah had done, it would get a fresh start in a place of peace. 
Lastly, we are surprisingly told the exact dates as though they matter. As surprisingly, they do matter. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest. I am not going to um, bore you with all the details, but if some of you are interested, I have the notes and I will be happy to give them to you that explains all of this. But that date is an extremely significant date. It is the exact day of the year that Jesus rose from the dead. The day the ark rested on Mount Ararat. The significance of that is that real peace for God's people rests in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I will never find rest anywhere else in the world. If we want peace and we want rest, we must find it in Jesus. Noah sends out birds. He sends out a raven and he sends out a dove and he does that in scientifically arranged sequence. God's not opposed to science. God's not opposed to you and I doing what we can do with the intelligence and the ability that he's given to us. So here is Noah, the man who has put together this ark that withstood all that water and tossing and all of that way back then. It didn't even leak. It held together and did not leak. And he begins now to begin to gather some information about the outside world as the rains have come to an end. He wants to understand what is happening out there and when will be the best time to leave the ark and, and what's the condition out there and, and when is it best to leave the ark and all of that. And so Noah was going to wait, and Noah did wait for God's instruction, but he wasn't just doing that. He was trying to learn about the environment while he waited for God to let him leave the ark. He was backing up his faith and his obedience to God with solid facts and reason. And he started doing that even before God gave him the command to leave the ark. The very first bird that he released was a raven. It is one of the unclean animals that Jews were forbidden to eat. Ravens, the reason for that is ravens feed on anything dead. <laughs> They're out there on the road when something gets crushed. <laughs> ravens feed on dead carcasses. And so the fact that Noah sends out the raven and it does not return tells Noah that the raven has found that it can survive resting on and eating off of the floating carcasses on the earth. 
The second bird that Noah releases is a dove. Now a dove is one of the clean animals of the Jews. It is one of the clean birds. It was so clean that it was used as an ac- sacrifice by poor people. You remember that Joseph and Mary, when they presented a sacrifice, they couldn't afford a lamb. They offered two doves. And so a dove was often used in the sacrifice by poor people in, in, instead of a sheep. And so Noah sends out this dove, and it goes out, um, and it returns. So Noah knew that the earth was not ready yet even to support a dove. A raven could make it, but not a dove. A dove wanted to find something clean to eat, and the dove returns. One week later, Noah sends out the same dove again. And this time, the dove returns with a gift for Noah. It is an olive leaf, telling Noah that the earth was returning to a peaceful normal. All of a sudden, there is that olive leaf. Now, one of the other things that you and I just don't automatically catch in our Bibles is that the olive branch is used consistently in the Old Testament in particular as a symbol for peace. And so that rest that God was delivering to the world through Noah now is, is being proven as the dove brings back this little olive branch leaf and brings it back to Noah and it's the first sign to Noah that God has accomplished his will of bringing peace to the earth once again um, through the flood. I want to say that you and I have two natures that war within us. One is the raven, and one is the dove. The raven is unclean, and it feeds on trash. It is an imposture that is foul and filthy and not very beneficial to us at all. The dove if you and I are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, has come to descend and to live within us, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Jesus also lives in us. And he is clean. He does not feast on any filth. And he comes back to us and he he feeds on what is good and true and pure and holy. And you and I have to choose to feed the dove in our lives instead of the raven. Because the spirit, the dove, will lead to peace and rest and wholeness and health in our lives. And our world is so full. You you know that word ravenous that we use, that comes from the word raven. Our world is so full of ravenous appetites that are meant to destroy us. Be careful, my friends, that you feed the dove in your life instead of the raven so that you may have rest. Again, we see the 
we see the scientific detail where it doesn't seem to be needed. <laughs> Noah is 601 years old. Now what is that number six? Six, of course, is the number for man. You know, 666, the mark of the beast. Noah lived his 600th year on the ark, representing what man can do by himself, hiding from the judgment of God for our sin. There's Noah on the ark the rest of the world was annihilated and destroyed in the flood because of the wickedness and the evil and the debauchery of the world. And Noah spent his 600th year on the ark hiding from the wrath of God. But on his 601st On his 601st year, the start of the 7th century of his life, Noah gets what God can do. Noah gets a fresh start. He gets a new world. He gets a new beginning. The old is gone and the new has come. Behold, all things are It was four and a half months after the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat that Noah removed the covering of the ark and he was able to look out and see the dry ground. But it was almost two months later when the earth was completely dry and it was safe for him to leave the ark. And that is a very, very long time waiting. I don't fly a lot anymore, but I did fly to Israel a couple years ago, and, and I've, even on shorter trips, even when I fly, you know, I, I'm, my legs hurt when I fly, and I just don't like that. But I, I'm generally a pretty good passenger as long as the plane is in the air. But about the time we leave, and they leave us sitting for the next 30 minutes, I go from being a dove to a raven. <laughs> and I get so antsy, I just want to push anyone out of the way, get out of my way, clear the aisle, I'm going to crawl over you, I'm going to do whatever I can to get out of here. Uh, you know, I don't know why that is, but you know, I can go the whole flight, and then as soon as the plane lands, just I'll break a window, I'll do whatever, get me out of here right now. <laughs> I think Noah felt that. <laughs> After being on that ark for one year, 17 days, I think the waiting to disembark was just torture for him. And then in verse 15 of chapter 8, we see God taking the initiative once again. 
Remember, God was the one that told Noah to build the ark. God was the one that invited Noah to come into the ark. God was the one that invites Noah to leave the ark. And God commands them to be fruitful and multiply just like he had told Adam and Eve. And God desires that you and I be fruitful and produce fruit for him. Spiritual descendants, making as big of an impact as we can with the people around us so that they walk with God. And Noah, simply in the midst of all of that, he simply responds with simple acts of obedience. Noah leaves the ark, and there is an awful lot to do. I mean, when you think the whole earth has been flooded, there isn't anything left. He's got work to do. He's got things to do. And what does he do? But he pauses to build an altar and to sacrifice a burnt offering. I don't think I would have been the man that Noah was. I think I'd have been out there doing something I shouldn't have been doing instead of building the altar. It was a burnt offering that he sacrificed, and a burnt offering is one where the whole animal is burned up. A lot of the sacrifices, you remember, they burned some of the portions, and they just cooked some of the meat, and then the Levites and the priests, and, and sometimes on some of the offerings, everyone got to share in the meat. But not in the burnt offering. The burnt offering was completely disintegrated by the fire and offered to God as a, a pleasing aroma to God. And Noah offers to God a burnt offering. And the significance there is that Noah was saying, God, I am dedicating my whole life to you, giving it all to you. And it's interesting because God soaks up that, he breathes that, the smoke of that burnt offering. And it's a pleasing aroma to God. And as a result of that commitment that Noah made and that sacrifice that Noah made, God makes a promise and he says, never again will I curse the ground as I did with Adam when I cursed the ground because of Adam's sin and as I did here with the flood. Even though the condition of the human heart remains unchanged. I want you to see right there something that sometimes we miss in this story. God knew that after Adam, man was sinful and they got just increasingly sinful until he, he just was sorry he made man. And he destroyed the earth except for Noah. But even with the flood happening... It was not enough to change the heart of man, and God knew it before he let them off the ark. Do you remember, you know, we're going to come to it, but Noah himself, I mean, he's just made a complete dedication of himself, and he doesn't live it out very well towards the end of his life, does he? God knew when they dismissed and they disembarked from the ark that 
that the condition of the human heart had not really changed, even though those eight people had witnessed the destruction of the world. And I just want to say something that is really key theology here that we have to understand. There is no amount of punishment that can change your heart. There is no amount of threat. Threat of hell, threat of this, threat of that, that can, has the power to change your heart. If the flood could not change the heart of man, there isn't anything that anyone can threaten you with that will change your heart. There is nothing that I can be threatened with that will change my heart. Except for blood of Jesus. Don't ever think, if you're praying for someone that just needs a life change, don't ever think that threats are going to change their heart. The law of Moses couldn't change their hearts. The flood couldn't change their heart. Nothing can change the heart of man except for Jesus. The second promise that God made was that never again would he destroy all living creatures again. And here's the third one. Never again would God disrupt the cycles of nature, day and night, weeks and years, seasons and the solar system and all of that. Now I know we live in, and I'm probably going to get in some hot water here, but that's okay. I like hot water. Um, we live in an age where we have all kinds of doom and gloom threats of climate change and global warming and all that nonsense. Uh, and I just got myself in trouble. <laughs> but this verse is the greatest reason for confidence in the face of the threats of global warming and climate change and all that kind of stuff. Because it tells us that God will never disrupt the cycles of nature, seasons, days and nights, solar systems, uh, weeks and years, and all that kind of stuff. God's in control of that. We are not. And the other thing this tells us is that even if those threats were real, we are to know that not even the threat of global warming and not even the threat of climate change has the power to change the heart of man. We will remain the same. <laughs> only Jesus and only Jesus can change the heart.